You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Mighty Father, by your Holy Spirit, pray that we would see and hear, know and trust, love, worship, and glorify your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, well, John 3 stands as one of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible. John 3.16 is probably the most famous verse uh, in, in all of Scripture. And the story involves a man named Nicodemus, who was not just a Pharisee, he was on the ruling council. Nicodemus had a great situation. He had power, respect, and status. He was probably financially comfortable. For a religious person, he had a very secure, comfortable life. But something was troubling Nicodemus. We know this because he has come to Jesus, and he has come to Jesus at night. And that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night tells us a lot about this story. There are two predominant theories on, on what it means that Nicodemus came at night. The first is that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in order to avoid trouble with the Pharisees. Jesus was public enemy number one with this group, and for Nicodemus to cavort with Jesus could cause people to, uh, to question his commitment as a Jew and his orthodoxy. If he were found to be associating with Jesus, he could be excommunicated and could lose everything. The second theory about why Jesus, uh, or, or what it means that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, operates metaphorically. The book of John, Jesus talks about people who walked at night, who were living at night. And this meant that they were under God's judgment, under God's wrath, rather than being under God's grace. And as we'll see in this passage, Nicodemus is, is walking at night. He is not saved, he has not repented, he has not put his faith in Christ, uh, and so he is under God's judgment. And so it's important to note that number one and number two are, are both simultaneously true. Nicodemus probably came to Jesus at night in order to avoid trouble with the Pharisees, uh, and we also know that he is under God's judgment. There's a third theory that I'd like to introduce. It's a little more superficial, and that is that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he could not sleep. Maybe, Nick Jesus, maybe Nicodemus had a restlessness and fear that was keeping him up at night. If you're a person who has ever struggled with sleep, you know that there, is, there are few things that can make you more miserable than insomnia. I've had seasons in my life where I was stressed or had anxiety, and I wake up every morning at 3 a.m. like I'm running from the cops. I get out of bed, and I go down to the couch, and I watch reruns of The Office or Modern Family or Friends, or I watch Champion League, Champions League highlights until I calm down and I fall back asleep. And usually there is an internal restlessness in my heart that manifests itself through an inability to sleep. Now, the scripture passage does not say explicitly that Nicodemus was struggling with insomnia, but we know that there was a restlessness in his heart because he has taken a massive risk in coming to visit Jesus. So today I want to look at John 3 in two parts. I want to first briefly look at Nicodemus' conversation. And secondly, I want to look at Nicodemus' restlessness. The question I have for you tonight is, what is keeping you up at night? 
What is causing your heart to toss and to turn? I want you to see that knowing the favor and the grace that God has toward you through Christ is the very thing that can give you a restful heart. So first, Nicodemus's conversation. Let's look at, take a brief examination of this conversation with Jesus. He comes to Jesus and he acknowledges that Jesus is a good teacher. But Nicodemus doesn't present a problem to Jesus. It's not like the story of the rich young ruler where he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, tell me how I'll inherit eternal life. There, there's no introduction like this. Jesus, without provocation, says somewhat bluntly and abruptly, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, the Pharisee just does not get it. His response is, how do I crawl back into my mother's womb to be born again? So Jesus attempts to clarify and explain that he's talking about a spiritual rebirth, a spiritual revolution in his life. And Nicodemus just does not have a category for this kind of spiritual conversion. So Jesus persists, but as it pertains to this conversation about our own restlessness, if there is a, a place in your life where you're experiencing turmoil and stress and anxiety, it is likely that you need an overhaul in your view of God and your view of your relationship with God in that specific area. A spiritual overhaul is needed to relieve the sleeplessness and the anxiety. So Nicodemus doesn't really understand that he needed to be born again. Uh, he just knew that he was restless. He just knew that life was not working. And so, but Jesus, Jesus knew the problem. He knew what was at the heart of the issue. And so we can identify three root issues that Jesus addresses here in this conversation. And that takes us to our second point, Nicodemus's restlessness. The first aspect of Nicodemus's restlessness is relatively obvious. He has no assurance of salvation. He has no peaceful answer to the question, what is going to happen to me when I die? Three times in this passage, Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you. And truly, truly means that he is talking about something of absolute, eternal, ultimate consequence. The first thing that Jesus says to him in verse 3 is, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To, or he cannot see the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom of God means that you enter into heaven after you die. He comes back in verse 5. He says the same thing. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So a first century Pharisee in part believed that they would be saved because of their ethnicity. They were born a Jew and in part because of their adherence to the law. If eternal salvation for a person involves human performance in any way, then a person can have no assurance of salvation at all. How can one ever know if you've been good enough or religious enough to earn eternal salvation? In Islam, salvation is determined on whether you've done more good things than bad things. How can a person ever keep score on how many good things or bad things that you've done in your life? As a result, a person who trusts in their own performance for salvation, no matter what the philosophical or religious worldview may be, really doesn't have any idea what's going to happen to them after they die. 
In the movie Little Miss Sunshine, a little girl named Olive asked her parents the question, what's going to happen to Grandpa soon after he dies? An awkward and chilling silence hovers over the car. A few miles later, she comes back to her Uncle Frank and says, Uncle Frank, do you think there's a heaven? And her uncle replies, well, that's hard to say, Olive. I don't think anyone really knows for sure. Her parents have no reply at all. Her uncle is terribly uncertain. This is the primary fundamental existential question in all of life, and they are without question. This is not a hypothetical question. Her grandfather's body is in the trunk of the car, which actually is really funny in the context of the movie. But this is not a theory. This is not a philosophy class in college. This is not a conversation at a local coffee shop. There is a dead body six feet away. Well, here's the comfort for the Christian. Romans 9, 12 through 13. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If you're a person who has any concerns at all about what is going to happen to you when you die, you simply need to have a prayerful conversation with Jesus, where you say, Jesus, I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be with you in heaven when I die. Please forgive all of my sins. In that basic spiritual conversation with God, you have called upon the name of the Lord. You will be saved. You have asked God to forgive all your sins. All your sins will be forgiven. And this number one question of life, it has been settled, and you do not have to worry about it any longer. On top of that, if you're a believer, here's the comfort. On a given day, what is the worst thing that can happen to you? The worst thing that can happen to any person on a given day is that they die. And if you die, what is the outcome? You end up in heaven. Now, to remember that perspective, that that's the worst outcome of a day, really turns down the temperature in the restlessness that we experience day in and day out. Now, the second aspect of Nicodemus' restlessness involves self-reliance. If you are a legalist or if you are a performance-driven person, you naturally tend to rely on yourself for all of the matters of your life. And uh, Nicodemus was, was no different. Uh, my late father was notorious for spending many nights lying awake on the couch in our house worrying about his business. Uh, my dad was, uh, owned a business, he had 150 employees, and it was in manufacturing. So he was the president of the company in the 1980s and 1990s when the manufacturing space was contracting and margins were getting thinner and thinner. And my dad worried constantly about the livelihood of his employees and enabling their ability to take care of their families. And my dad was a Christian. He was a very ethical and moral man. But I do not think he had a sense in his relationship with Jesus of what it looks like to hand over your burden of the day-to-day -day issues of life to him, to put him in the hands of God. Jesus says in, to Nicodemus in verse 15, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In Numbers 21, uh, where a group of Israelites were dying from snake venom, the way that God leads them to be healed 
was to look up at the snake that Moses held above himself. In reality, what he was saying was that the first step in being healed is to look at their own sin and to look at their own inability to heal themselves uh, and, and to be healed by God. And then Jesus turns this notion on himself. As the snake was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, which is pointing to the cross where Jesus is lifted up to die for our sins. He tells Nicodemus to look up to the Son of Man. He tells us to look up to the cross. And looking to the cross first involves looking at the grace and mercy of God. But it also involves looking at our own sin, our own powerlessness that Jesus bears for us on the cross. If you are experiencing sleepless nights and restlessness, there's a good chance that you are claiming responsibility for things that are far beyond your human capacity. There is a good chance that you are claiming responsibility for things that only God can handle. So very few things will give you more freedom than recognizing your own sinfulness and your own inability to redeem yourself. Very few things will give you more relief than admitting the limitations of your humanity and your powerlessness to control the world around you. And as you look to the cross, the necessary response is to put those things that are troubling you into the hands of God the Father, to let him take care of them. It could be remarkably freeing to say to God, God, I'm a limited person, I'm a sinner, I am powerless to solve the problems of my life. I look to you to help me address these issues. I look to you to fix my problems. Now, Jesus addresses Nicodemus's restlessness uh, by first talking about assurance of salvation and secondly, talking about self-reliance. The third and final assurance that Jesus offers Nicodemus relates to God's favor towards him. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, and John 3.17, which is the most underrated book in the Bible, why do you say so myself? Jesus tells Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, if you were Nicodemus, you're a first century Pharisee. This instability related to your eternal salvation was really grounded in a lack of certainty about how God feels about you. On a day when you perceive that you're being obedient, you're living your best life, you might think, God loves me, he's pleased with me. And on the day when you keep on making mistakes and sinning and you're losing control, you may presume that God is disappointed in you or, or maybe he's even mad at you. Well, Jesus makes this clear. God loves you to such a degree that he would sacrifice his son. He cares about being with you more than he cares about his own son. Jesus did not come into the world because God is mad at you. He came into the world because God is crazy about you. A pastor at the church I attended when I was in college uh, had a child who had a, a life-threatening medical condition that they could not figure out. And so they had this journey of constantly going to uh, the hospitals and doctors for tests and examinations. And there would be this spiral of fear on what is the news that we're going to receive? What is the bad news that we might get today? And so finally, after this exhausting season of, of fear and terror, 
his wife uh, at one of these appointments as they were sending his son in for an examination stopped and said, we're not doing this anymore. We're going to make a decision here and now. Either God is good or he's not. Either God loves us or he doesn't. All of this instability and all this fear, it really revolved around this question of whether or not God was actually good and whether or not God actually loved them. So when you enter into a day with a lack of certainty about whether or not the master of the universe is for you or against you, there is always going to be a subliminal sense of restlessness in your life. And so how is it that we answer this question? Is God good? And does he love us? That's a really simple answer. He gave his son for us. In our restless moments in our daily lives, we revisit this question. Is God good? It does God actually love us? And we answer this question over and over again with the same image. We answer this question with confidence where we can say, yes, God is good. Yes, God loves us. Yes, God is for us. By looking at the same image over and over again. And that image is the cross. Let us pray. Almighty God, pray that you would glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.